against an unprecedented attack from Hamas. The U.S. economy sends mixed signals about the future. And Kansas Governor Laura Kelly works with the Biden administration to turn Kansas from red to blue. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody who is watching live on Facebook this morning. We appreciate your support. I'm glad that you're with us and hope you enjoy the conversation with other Facebook watchers today. Please like and share the program so we can spread the news that there is a program out there that does talk about truth and politics and culture. And if you're listening on the podcast, whenever you're listening today, thank you very much for being a follower and for downloading the podcast. I hope you're finding that this is a good place to get solid information and to also get some inspiration. We talk about stories here that likely are not going to be really extrapolated in the mainstream or legacy media because we're going to talk about the Christian underpinnings and Christian worldview for a lot of the things that are going on uh, in the world And, of course, we have a very troubled world to talk about today. Before we get in that, just a quick word, and I promise this is very quick, about sports, since that's something that I I talk about. Dallas Cowboys were destroyed by the San Francisco 49ers yesterday, 42-10, to revealing that this is not going to be the Cowboys' year um, as Dak Prescott keeps throwing uh, interceptions. And, of course, the Atlanta Braves with uh, Stryker on the mound, it, it was not very uh, – or uh, Strider, rather. It was not very encouraging to have our best pitcher beat by the Philadelphia Phillies in the first game of the National League's uh, playoffs, divisional playoffs. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens. The Braves play again today. They had yesterday off. All right, uh, enough about that. Quick programming note. We're honored to have as a guest tomorrow morning – the Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, Pamela Evett, is going to join us, and we're going to be talking about a lot of things going on in South Carolina. We'll obviously talk about things going on in the Republican Party in general and in the world, and um, I'm, I'm just excited to have her on. She will join me around 7.35 in the morning, and uh, so I hope you'll tune in and tell people today that if they'd like to hear their Lieutenant Governor talk about current affairs and in South Carolina, but also around the world, to join us for Truth and Politics and Culture tomorrow morning live at 7.30 or to download tomorrow's version of the podcast. All right, unless you were uh, taking a vacation to Mars or somewhere off the planet this weekend, I'm sure you know that Israel was attacked by Hamas early Saturday morning at the start of the Jewish holiday uh, Simchat Torah, And according to the Wall Street Journal, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard in Iran gave the go-ahead last Monday and is supporting the attacks. There's no big surprise there. Iran has been working closely with Hamas. Uh, We're going to talk about later in the program this morning how the United States' response to Iran, the releasing of billions of dollars to the Iranian government, not just over the hostage trade that was just recent, 
the $6 billion that was unfrozen and gave into, given to Iran, although, um, well, well, we'll get into all, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but let me just say that it's much more than just a one transaction deal since President Biden has been in office that is emboldening Iran and giving them the resources that they need to supply Hamas with the resources they need to launch this kind of attack. Now, I want to say today that I'm not going to deal directly with any kind of biblical prophecy dealing with this present attack on Israel. I think it's too soon to do that. Um, obviously, there are implications in biblical prophecy that come into play when Israel is attacked massively by her enemies. Um, a lot of people who follow eschatology begin to think about the book of Ezekiel, for example, or the book of Daniel, or the book of Revelation, and how all those books are related as we think about what the Bible has to say about end times prophecy. Um, I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to hold off on that a little bit. I want to see how far this goes. I want to see if, it's, if it escalates, uh, because throughout history, there have been multiple attacks on Israel. And every time there's, a, there's an attack on Israel, there'll be those who are quick to jump in and say, okay, this is it. This is the end times. This is Israel's being attacked by our enemies in mass. And this is the confusion, the state of the world that we were, we were going to be in at the time when Israel would be attacked and we'd see the rise of the Antichrist, depending on your eschatology. Um, and so we'll... It's not time, I don't think yet, because we don't know the scope of this attack. We know that it's the worst in modern history against Israel, um, and it's on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, the 40th anniversary, no, 50th, excuse me, that um, was launched in 1973. And so it, it's, it, it's easy to see that there are parallels but it's not quite time, I don't think, to bring in the biblical aspect other than to know that anything that happens with Israel, um, if we know the history, we go all the way back to Abraham, that those descendants of Abraham are going to be blessed by God, and those that bless them will also receive that blessing. And for a long time, the United States, since Israel is, was formed in 1940. Uh, 7, 48, um, since that day, the United States was the first major country about 11 minutes after Israel declared a government, then the United States was one of the first countries under Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, to recognize the Israeli state, and we've been big supporters of Israel since then. And of course, there are many in this country now, particularly the squad, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others that are supporters openly of the, the of really of Hamas. Now they will say they're not supporting Hamas; they're supporting the Palestinian people. But you cannot support the Palestinian people without acknowledging that Hamas is their ruling government in Gaza, and Hamas is a terrorist organization recognized by the United States and the rest of the world as being involved directly in terrorism, particularly against uh, Israel, but also around the world. So as we get into the story, just giving you the, the heads up that I, I'm going to talk about 
um, the, the aspects of what's actually happening. Today, we're going to talk about the news. Uh, we're going to talk about how these attacks could escalate. We're going to talk about what's already happening with the United States response. I want to get you as up to date as I can and keep you up to date as this crisis is unfolding in the Middle East and the chances that it could escalate to something here in the United States. U.S. Uh, police forces have already beefed up security around key synagogues with the concern that there could be Hamas attacks here in the United States. Um, there's also a concern. There have been reports. Now, we don't, we don't have any, I have no verification of what I'm about to say to you. I'm reporting to you what I'm reading on X and different sources about Hamas having operatives, sleeper cells here in the United States. Now, we've been hearing this forever, right? I mean, we, we've been hearing, um, I guess, all the way back since 9-11, that, that terrorists have sleeper cells in the United States, and they're just waiting for um, a, a, a go-ahead in order to wreak havoc in major U.S. cities. And, of course, any time there's a big event like this that happens on the world stage, that kind of conversation picks up again, that this is going to happen, that they're, they've crossed the southern border, they're here in mass, and they're just waiting until they get an order. I, well... We've, we haven't seen that before, and we should be thankful, obviously, that we haven't. But that's not to say that, our, you know, that, that there aren't people here that want to hurt us. We know that there are. We just don't know the numbers. We don't know exactly where they are. I mean, if, they, if we did, we'd be rounding them up. Um, or what kind of force that they could bring to bear and... and, and, and in the way, by the way of causing havoc in some of our major cities and other places by their numbers. And we, we just don't know that. So there's chatter out there about that. But I don't think at this moment that this is, an, this is a time when we need to be overly concerned about that. We need to be concerned about it. And hopefully our police and military are looking into all this and getting a better grasp on it than evidently the Israeli security and intelligence agencies had. One of the things that's happening as fallout from all of this over the weekend is that Israeli intelligence is supposed to be one of the best intelligence gathering operations in the world. And of course, they work very closely with American intelligence. And so investigations are going to happen. Once this all is settled um, and order is restored, uh, and forever how long that takes, there's going to be a lengthy investigation in Israel about how their intelligence and security forces failed so terribly to see an attack coming of this magnitude. I mean, we're talking about Israel being attacked from the land, from the air, uh, from the sea. Um, we're talking about 20 towns and villages in Israel out that are, are close to the Gaza area being invaded by ground forces. We're talking about civilians being slaughtered. Uh, we're, and, and as we get into this, it was actually over 20 towns that, that were in, invaded, soldiers and civilians alike targeted, taken hostage or killed. 260 bodies were found at an outdoor music festival. Uh, social media images were horrific showing various brutal acts being committed by Hamas. I mean, I, I went and looked at some of this, and I, I just had to turn it off because it, it is just 
brutal. There were images of dead Israeli citizens being driven around in the back of pickup trucks. Uh, one social media image showed abducted Jewish children being held in what looked like a dog cage. So, so let's don't mistake the, the ferocity or the, the, uh, the barbaric nature of this attack. We're not talking about Hamas coming in and targeting Israeli military installations, although some military camps were affected by the Hamas attacks. We're talking about civilians being taken hostage, over 100. And we also know that some, at least four, the State Department has not confirmed yet, but what we're hearing coming out of Israel is at least four American citizens believed to have dual American and Israeli citizenship have been killed in Israel, and others may have been taken hostage. Uh, because there, as I said, there, there are likely dozens of people still being held hostage. Uh, some of the Israeli hostages were confirmed killed in a retaliatory strike that Israel launched against Hamas. And, and here's the thing we need to be prepared for. Um, Israel is, is, is just beginning in their response to this attack. Their first priority was to secure the border. They've got to secure, and that's the first priority, by the way, of any country that wants to make sure that they're not being going to be invaded, is to have a secure border. So Israel is working to secure their border. They're working to hunt down Hamas terrorists that have already infiltrated to try to free any hostages that may be in Israeli territory um, and, and to make sure that the border is closed. Now, they can't guarantee. Reports out of Israel this morning say that the Israeli, the IDF forces have regained control of Israel, that all of Israel, according to spokespeople, that are releasing information on behalf of Israel, all of Israel is now under the control of IDF forces and that Hamas has been eliminated, at least in areas that they were holding. Now, there's still some fighting going on. There's still some isolated fighting with Hamas terrorists, and the Israeli IDF forces are still going house to house looking to clear the terrorists and to make sure that they release as many hostages as possible. But what we need to understand, Israel's already started responding in Gaza by conducting airstrikes. Um, they've targeted Hamas terrorists. Israel doesn't wage war against civilian populations. But many times, Hamas puts their command and control, their uh, surveillance systems, their operations uh, centers are all located in civilian areas. And they do this on purpose because when Israel, by, by reason of their own security, has to come into Gaza and take out these operational centers, then as a byproduct of that, Palestinian citizens, men, women, children, all are caught up in the war. And that's intentional. I mean, that's intentional on the part of, part of Hamas. They don't care about their own people. They don't care about how many Palestinians die, and, and they're perfectly willing to use human beings as human shields against any retalia retaliatory strike from Israel. Now, Israel's response has always been measured in the sense that they respond in kind to the level of attack that they've received. And again, they don't target human uh, civilians. They, they, don't, they, they go after military targets. But there's going to be civilians that die because of the way Hamas operates. 
and what Israel's preparing for now, once their, their first um, priority, of course, was to stop Hamas from coming across the border in Gaza, to make sure that Hezbollah in Lebanon doesn't fully engage. They've been exchanging fire back and forth between uh, the Israeli military and Hezbollah uh, terrorists in Lebanon, but they're trying to make sure that if, to, you know, if, they, if another front opens in the war, if Hezbollah been, begins to come across from Lebanon, uh, then the Israeli forces will have to be divided to fight a war on a couple of different fronts. But so far, Hezbollah has been restricted to simply sending artillery shells and some rockets into Israel, and IDF forces have been firing back into Lebanon to keep Hezbollah in check. But both Hezbollah and Hamas are being heavily funded and heavily controlled by Iran. Um, according to reports coming out of Israel, over 1,000, over 1,100 actually, Israelis are dead. About 400 Palestinians have died. Now, that's according to uh, numbers coming out of Gaza, but also confirmed by Israeli military. The Israeli military says that the, the bulk of the 400 that have been killed are Hamas terrorists, either in Israel or in Palestine or in Gaza. But, um, of course, the Palestinians are saying, no, these are men, women, and children that are innocent, and that go back, goes back to our previous conversation, whereas Hamas operates its command and control centers in civilian and close to civilian populations. Uh, there are still dozens of civilians, including uh, some Americans and some German citizens that are believed to be held hostage, and they've been scattered throughout Gaza. And as I said, Israel has confirmed that there have been some Israeli citizens that have died while Israel was taking out Hamas targets. Uh, on Saturday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war on Hamas, and uh, the Knesset approved that. They called up active duty reservist and by the hundreds of thousands, several hundred thousand Israeli defense forces have been called up as from reserve duty to active duty. And the initial fighting in Israel focused on, as we said, resecuring the border and bombing these key targets in Gaza. But make no mistake, Israel is getting ready for a major ground offensive. And that's probably going to begin as soon as they're uh, sure that they've got enough forces at the border to keep more Hamas fighters from coming over. The initial attack on Israel from the air was over 3,000 rockets fired, and it was so many that it overwhelmed Iron Dome. I mean, the, the Iron Dome missile defense system can take out a lot of these rockets coming in from Gaza, but they, they can't stop that many. I mean, that it, if they fire that many rockets at a time, uh, there's no way Iron Dome can can prevent all of them from landing. So a lot of them landed, and of course the rocket fire was kind of a distraction. I mean, because when you look at what was happening, you had the rockets being fired into Israel, and then Hamas began coming across and attacking civilians in these 20 towns. And I think that's the key element that Israeli security missed that Hamas was massing, and to have enough fighters to be able to overwhelm the border and come into these towns, occupy Israeli territory, and that led to the death of civilians, over 1,100, some military, but mostly civilians. 
Fox News reported that as of this morning, multiple reports coming out of Israel confirm that the country's secure, that IDF forces are in control of all the areas that were held by Hamas. There's still, as I said, isolated uh, clashes taking place across the country. Israel Defense Minister Yoiv Gallant has ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. He said, quote, there will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is cl closed. Gilad Iran, Israel's ambassador to the UN, condemned the savagery of Hamas forces. This is also coming from Vox News. These are war crimes, blatant documented war crimes. The era of reasoning with these savages is over. Now is the time to obliterate Hamas terror infrastructure, to completely erase it so that such horrors are never committed again. A lot of people are calling this uh, the this attack Israel's 9-11. Now, I've got some um, audio that I want you to hear, which is talking about uh, from different sources from Israel. The first one is an occupational update with IDF international spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht. And this is coming to you courtesy of the Daily Signal. The style of attack is barbaric. I mean, the, the, the visuals are uh, ISO visuals. In a way, this is our 9-11. This is our 9-11. And, you know, even more than that, I mean, it wasn't crashing into a building. It's uh, also mutilating and attacking a party that was happening around the, the Gaza Strip, a nature party. Uh, attacking civilians, kidnapping a grandmother. Um, a lot of my friends, a lot of our, everybody nearly in Israel is affected by this, by someone they know, missing people, soldiers that have been killed. There's been real stories of heroes that engage with terrorists. And we're going we're, we're gonna to respond very, very severely to this. Okay, obviously they're going to be forced to do that, and there's going to be... I mean, the headlines are going to change. You've already got hundreds of protesters in New York City uh, that are protesting in favor of the Palestinians. There have been calls by some uh, in the United States for Israel to stand down, that is to not respond severely. Uh, there's no way that that is going to not happen. I mean, Israel is going to have to go into Gaza. They're going to have to clean out these terrorist enclaves, and they're going to have to reduce Hamas' ability to wage war like this uh, because they can't have, obviously, civilians, men, women, and children being slaughtered, uh, children taken hostage, all these things. So there's, there's going to be a direct response. Here is from the Israel Defense Forces another spokesperson talking about what that response will be like, not only talking about the attack, but the response that Israel will have. Hamas terrorists target Israeli civilians Israel will target Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists wherever they will be in Gaza. We will do whatever it takes to, to protect our people and restore security to Israel. Okay, so obviously this is what the military is going to say. This is what the people need to hear. Uh, there's going to be a lot of loss in confidence. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister has always been seen as the security prime minister because he's been the tough prime minister. Every time Israel is under threat or has come under attack, the people 
for the last 20 plus years have turned to Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister. They put him back in office because they believe that he's strong enough to respond to attacks like this. But his ability to govern in Israel has been greatly shaken. It was shaken by the fact that he was trying to limit the Israeli Supreme Court, which because Israel has no constitution, uh, the Supreme Court in Israel can overrule, override any decision by the Knesset, any decision by the prime minister, uh, they, and, and they don't have to have a reason other than a majority on the court agree. And Israel, the, their, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, rightly so, in my opinion, has called for restraints on the Supreme Court in order to make uh, for a more balanced government and to take some of the power away from the judiciary. Here in the United States, we're blessed to have three levels of government, to have the legislative, executive, and judicial, uh, where there are checks and balances. And the, the Supreme Court, when it rules, has to depend on the text of the, of the Constitution. It has to depend on the bulk of U.S. law. But in Israel, there is no Constitution, and so the Supreme Court um, is pretty much has a free hand. And the controversy over that, there have been mass protests in Israel where the Supreme Court, reigning in the Supreme Court, has been called for. Because in the people of Israel, in their minds, those who are progressive in Israel want a, a, a free Supreme Court. They don't want any limits on their Supreme Court. Because as the government, the Knesset, becomes more conservative, then the Supreme Court becomes the answer to that. And so a lot of um, more progressive Israelis have taken to the streets earlier this year um, in mass protest over this move by Netanyahu and the conservative uh, coalition to try to limit the Supreme Court. Um, but and, and that has caused problems of confidence in Netanyahu's leadership. Now there's going to be an investigation. I mean, it'll take months, maybe a year, after the dust settles from all of this, there's going to be investiga an investigation into Israeli security and why an intelligence. How could this happen with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister who's known as Mr. Security? How could this happen under his watch? And that's going to undermine a lot of the feeling toward him, I think, in Israel. So we have a declaration of war, as we said, from Prime Minister Netanyahu. Here's... Um, just a little bit of the response that we're hearing. I, I really like what Robert Greenway had to say from the Heritage Foundation. He was speaking on Fox News, and he was speaking generally about how the United States position toward Iran in the last few years, not just the latest $6 billion that's been released, but in the last several years, it, of course, the $6 billion plays a role. Um, it's, it, it's a limited role because that money right now is in Qatar. It hasn't even been released. It was sent to be for humanitarian aid. But the fact that the Iranians know that they have access to that money allows them to move money around to put resources into Hamas when they know that money's coming that's going that has been released to them that can refill their coffers. Money is fungible. We don't just because they say that you know this money was specifically for humanitarian aid. 
in Iran, they're able to shift money that would be used to keep humanitarian aid, to keep the Iranian, the mullahs and the Iranian government intact so the people of Iran don't rise up against them. Um, they're able to shift that money toward military objectives by Iran's um, um, terrorist organizations, and certainly that's Hamas and Hezbollah. So here's Robert Green Greenway talking to Fox News over the weekend. Yeah, there's no doubt, John. I think it, that's the way the region reads it. If you look at it from their perspective, we provided almost unlimited resources to the regime since 2021. After the election, President Biden took office, we lifted restrictions and stopped enforcing sanctions. And so where they once enjoyed less than $4 billion of accessible foreign exchange reserves, they now enjoy over 70. They were selling maybe 400,000 barrels a day of oil at $55 a barrel. That's now well over 3 million barrels a day at $85 a barrel. We've given them the oxygen they need to breathe. And with that comes support for their surrogates and proxies, including Hamas but also Hezbollah and the entire constellation of surrogates. And so most in the region look at this as though the United States were paying for it. And in a sense, they're very correct. Okay, I, I think that's excellent analysis. Rather than just focusing on the $6 billion, we need to be thinking about the entire, entire amount of support that Iran has received, as, um, as Greenway says, since 2001. I mean, you, you've got... It, what, what you just heard. Um, you've got all this money that's being released, $70 billion now that is available to the Iranian government, not, not just the $6 billion that was released recently, but because of sanctions being lessened and loosened, uh, the Iranian government now has access to about $70 billion, where before it had access to about $4 billion. And then, of course, on top of that, the sale of oil on the open market. It's gone from a few hundred thousand barrels um, in, in a, a day up to three million, and not at $55 a barrel, but at $95 or plus a barrel. And that is that money, any money that goes into the Iranian government goes into the hands of Hamas and Hezbollah because that is their proxies. The way Iran stays as a major player in the world, the way they uh, are trying to escape responsibility for all these actions that are taking place, that they're funding, is by having their proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas, take on these attacks in Israel and terrorist attacks around the world. And so when we talk about how the United States has played a role in this, because of the Biden administration policies, we don't need to stop with the $6 billion. Yes, that was a terrible deal that the United States struck. And it sends a message to Iran that we are totally open to having a uh, an open relationship with them, even though they're continuing to work on obtaining a nuclear weapon. Some say that they're very close to obtaining nuclear capability. And they're continuing to fund Hezbollah and Hamas. And, and this is, to me, this is the bottom line. It is impossible for us to have a strong relationship with Iran and a strong relationship with Israel in the Middle East. We're going to have to pick. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about a little bit, a little bit about where what some of the roots of this are. There's an article today in the Washington Post that blames this on Israel, of course, because of police stepping up. Uh, enforcement at the Temple Mount that began back in April. 
But when you look at the planning of this, it's obvious that the planning of this attack took place long before April, that this has been in the works for many, many months, and that Iran has been heavily involved in it because of how it was coordinated and how it was covered up again from the Israeli intelligence apparatus. Now, um, presidential candidate Nikki Haley went on with, I believe this is CNN, but she's talking about this, or no, it's Meet the Press, so it's not CNN, it's NBC News, excuse me, NBC Meet the Press. Uh, Haley was talking about the fact she highlighted the $6 billion. Here's her response from Sunday morning. I actually think it was irresponsible for Secretary Blinken to say that the $6 billion doesn't weigh in here. I mean, let's be honest with the American people and understand that Hamas knows and Iran knows they're moving money around as we speak because they know $6 billion is going to be released. That's the reality. When I was at the United Nations, you saw that when those planes full of cash sent by Obama to Iran, I went to the International Atomic Energy Agency. I met with them. What happened? was those funds were sent to Hezbollah in Lebanon. They were sent to Hamas in Gaza. They were sent to the Houthis in Yemen. They go and spread terrorism every time they get a dollar. Okay, I I think that's the best point that she made in that exchange, um, That and it, because it's true. Every time Iran gets a dollar, you can be sure that that money is going to be going to support terrorist operations by Hamas and Hezbollah somewhere, and even the Houthis. And so this is in Yemen. Um, that every, every opportunity Iran has to bring disruption to the world, uh, to the United States, to Israel, to the world order as it stands, they're going to do it. They're going to take those opportunities. Uh, right now, the United States' response is that um, the military, we've got a, an aircraft group, the USS Gerald Ford. It's one of the newest and most sophisticated aircraft carriers, and it's accompanied by the cruiser USS Normandy and four destroyers that have been sent to the Mediterranean. They were actually in the region uh, conducting naval exercises, and now they're going to be focused in the Med in the, in the event that Israel needs their help or if Iran or other countries decide to step in and get involved. This American military presence is designed to try to prevent that. You've got F-35, F-15, F-16, and AT fighter, AT-10, I'm sorry, A-10 fighter squadrons that are in the region, and all of them are being augmented. The Biden administration released a statement saying the United States is fully cooperating with Israel and is already supplying equipment, munitions, and other resources. The State Department, at the same time, is communicating with our allies in the region, including Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. Um, Obviously, they're trying to reassure our allies that the United States is doing everything to support Israel and to keep this from escalating and involving other countries in the Middle East. And that's the real concern. What is Iran going to do when Israel starts a major ground offensive in Gaza? What will Hezbollah in Lebanon do? Will they hold fire, or are they going to open another front in the war? Um, If they do, this is going to be a long slog. Now, National Review has got a, uh, a story about this today, and they are. there's a lot in this article, uh, I think, that can help us to understand why this is a different kind of attack. Uh, they're talking about the title of this piece in National Review is 
that the Hamas attack changes everything. It's by Elliot Abrams, and it, he talks about the fact that Israel is facing some very difficult choices. Uh, for several years, especially in the last year, I'm reading from the article now, it seemed that Hamas had decided to seek calm in Gaza, where it governs, while supporting violence and terror in the West Bank. And in the West Bank, terrorist attacks increased each month. Meanwhile, Israel allowed 17,000 workers to enter Israel from Gaza each day, and they had been negotiating with the government in Gaza to raise that number to 30,000. It seemed there was a silent agreement between Israel and Hamas to keep things quiet in Gaza. I think it's important to note here, as the critics come out with the long knives going after Israel because of their response to this attack against them, that prior to this attack, Israel had been working with uh, people in the Gaza Strip, the, the Hamas governing group in Gaza, trying to increase the number. This has been a request for a long time to allow more workers to come into Israel from Gaza. And it, the Israelis were moving toward that, had 17,000 a day. They wanted to increase that to 30,000 to help the economy. Obviously, if people are able to cross over from Gaza into Israel, if, if they their, their employment opportunities because of how depressed uh, the Palestinian area in Gaza is because of the rule of Hamas, uh, it is an advantage to them economically to have workers coming into Israel and to be able to make a living and to improve the economy in Gaza. And this is something that the Israelis are open to if there's no violence. Well, obviously, that's done. Uh, all of these negotiations were based on the idea that Hamas cared about the lives of the Gaza population, and these attacks have proved that it does not. Recent accounts of the Yom Kippur War in 1973 have noted the problem on conception back then. Israeli security officials came to believe that after the crushing Arab defeat in the Six-Day War, an attack so few years afterward was inconceivable. Then it happened. In this case, the conception was that Israel could reach um, sort of a, 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 some type of uneasy peace or uh, cooperation with Hamas because Hamas valued calm in Gaza. Obviously, it doesn't. Now, the question, why did Hamas attack now? And like I said, there's a story in the Washington Post today that blames all of this on Israeli enforcement at the Akasem Mosque, which is stoking tensions in Israel. Uh, here's, here's what the Washington Post called it. Hamas leader said the surprise attacks, which led to Israel's deadliest day in at least 75 years, was retribution for recent violence against the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem and increased settler attacks. Now, this is known, of course, as the Temple Mount. Uh, this, it is known to Palestinians as the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but that whole the whole area of the Temple Mount is known to the Jewish people as a holy site. It's holy to Jews, it's holy to Christians, and it's holy to Muslims. And that is in the center of all this. Police raided the site in early April in the middle of a Muslim holy the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, just before the start of the Jewish Passover holiday. And overlap, Israeli security officials have long warned could lead to further escalation. But the new national security minister, uh, Itar ben Gidar, 
uh, leader of Israel's far-right religious nationalist movement, has pushed for a greater Jewish presence at the Temple Mount. Ben Givar is known for making provocative moves to assert Jewish claims to Palestinian land or religious spaces. And so the Washington Post take on this is, look, this, this is a response to security forces in Israel making more Jewish, more of a Jewish presence uh, able to be um, opened up at the Temple Mount. Now, this is the Temple Mount is in Israel. It's a holy site to Israel. It's the site of Solomon's Temple. It's the site where Abraham offered Isaac. I mean, this is, and, and for there to be more uh, Arabs at the at the t- holy site than there are Israelis is ridiculous. And this is part of the tension that's ongoing in Israel because you have to divide up how many people are going to be allowed at the Temple Mount to be able to visit. And this incursion in April, right before Passover, was to allow to provide security and to allow more Israelis to be able to visit the site. Now, I don't think that's got anything to do with this attack, and I I said that earlier. Uh, It may be a small part of some of the tensions that have been taking place between Israel and Gaza, but this attack was planned a long time ago. Uh, The planning and the organization for an attack of this size has has been in the works before April, and so I, I, I don't think that the Washington Post is correct about the motivation here. I think that it's the anniversary of Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur War that's on the table. Here's what National Review had to say. Why did Hamas attack now? No recent event in Gaza explains the timing, nor do recent visits to the Temple Mount by Israelis. What seems obvious is true. The attack was timed for the 50th anniversary of the surprise attack in 1973. Note, and and look, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, Arab terrorist organizations, are notorious for celebrating past events, past attacks against Israel by launching new attacks. So this makes all the sense in the world. Um, Hamas had no way to know that there was a Saudi-Israeli negotiation that was going on or where that would stand in October when this attack was planned. Again, some are speculating that because Israel has been negotiating, negotiating with the Saudis about a stronger relationship, that that could have been the precursor for the attack. But again, I, I agree with National Review. I think this is all about the symbolism of uh, being able to attack on the anniversary of a 1973, the last major attack that was ha- that was carried out against Israel. Uh, the attack is different from the usual Hamas use of rockets and missiles. This was a ground attack meant to capture dozens of Israelis and murder many more. The rocket rocket attack, and there were thousands seem like more of a diversion. And so I I agree. I think National Review is spot on about this. All right, well, we'll keep you updated. Right now, as we said, the the ground war is preparing in Israel, the invasion of Gaza. Uh, The border, the IDF forces say, is secure. There's some skirmishes between Hamas terrorists and Israeli forces still on Israeli soil. But for the most part, all of the 20 towns that were affected have been taken back over by IDF forces, and what we expect to see next is a massive uh, ground response by Israel into Gaza. 
All right, let's move on and talk about a couple of other stories. There's a poll out today that I thought was interesting. I wanted to mention it. A new survey by YouGov for CBS News found that most Republicans want Representative Kevin McCarthy's successor as House Speaker to be loyal to former President Trump. This is coming from Newsmax today. Over 59% of Republicans want the new House Speaker to be loyal to Trump among, among Make America Great Again MAGA Republicans. That number is as high as 84%. Another 49% of all Republicans want the next Speaker to be part of the MAGA movement. However, 58% said they still want the California Republicans heir apparent to work with Democrats, which is interesting. I mean, that's really not the MAGA way working with Democrats. It's more of defeating Democrats and not being willing to reach across the aisle to gain concessions. More than two-thirds of Republicans, 72%, responded that they want the next speaker to continue the impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. And by the way, uh, Jim Jordan has, has come out and said that if he's elected speaker, that he'll give full support to Israel um, that that will be one of the first things that the House does should he be elected. They're going to start having this in-house discussion, closed-door meetings tomorrow, and they hope to have an open vote for a new Speaker of the House on Wednesday if they can come up with a unity candidate. last thing Republicans want to do is go to the floor without knowing for sure that they have the votes to put somebody in office because they don't want this thing to drag out. But there's no way to tell for sure that they're going to be able to do that. Um, Jim Jordan also said that if he's elected, you can count on the fact that the impeachment inquiry into President Biden will continue. Republicans were split on their opinion of McCarthy's ouster. A slight majority, 53%, said they approved. 47% said they did not. Still, 51% do not think it will have a substantial effect on the country. So... You could say right now that the Republican Party, Republicans as a majority, are concerned about the confusion in Washington, but they think at the end of the day it's not going to have a major impact. And it, it won't have a major impact going forward other than in the minds maybe of independent voters. I'm still concerned about what this looks like to the electorate. Hopefully it'll be forgotten by the time they go to the polls over a year from now. But you can count on the Democrat Party doing their best to remind voters that the Republican majority in the House was in some kind of chaos for a protracted amount of time until they get a new speaker elected. But hopefully all this will fade. If they can get somebody elected as speaker, either Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan, if it's a conservative leader uh, that can work with the 20 or so Republicans that were responsible, uh, particularly the eight out of the 20 that were responsible for ousting MacArthur, uh, Kevin McCarthy, rather, um, then this thing, you know, Congress can go forward. I mean, they can, if it's drawn out much past this week, if, if they're not able to reach a consensus on Wednesday, and that's the concern right now, that they're not going to be able to do that. So we'll wait and see. But at least you know how a lot of different Republican groups feel about it. All right. Um, this story caught my attention today because, as you know, because we talked about it, if you listen to the program, President Biden put out an executive order earlier this year pushing federal agencies to meddle in elections. I mean, and that's basically what he told them to do, to monitor, to push 
voter registration. And in Kansas, Governor Laura Kelly is working with a group that orchestrated the president's strategy. So they're trying to flip Kansas from, from red to blue. Kelly, a Democrat, this is according to the Daily Signal, began negotiating a deal in 2019 with New York-based liberal advocacy group Demos. A year later, in December 2020, um, Devos would draft the parameters of Biden's executive order 14019, which mandated get-out-the-vote activities with government agencies without the need for congressional approval. So between the 2020, I think I said this was signed earlier this year, it was back in 2020, before the 2020 presidential election, social service agencies in Kansas helped push 277,000 voter registration forms where to targeted groups. See, this is the thing that this this executive order by President Biden is turning into. They want to tout it as government agencies getting more people registered to vote people from across the spectrum. But in fact, that's not the way that it's being done. Just like in Kansas, these are targeted groups that registration forms are being sent to. And these are progressive groups that are going to support a Democrat agenda in Kansas. And I'm afraid that that's happening in a lot of states. Uh, Quote, the real point is the governor entered into an election law agreement without the consent of the legislature Kansas State Representative Pat Proctor, a Republican who chairs the House Elections Committee, told the Daily Signal, the idea that the governor can sit in a smoke-filled room and unilaterally commit the state to an election agreement is not constitutional. Um, I believe that's true, and it's up to the Republicans in Kansas and the legislature to rein her in. The Kansas legislature is the first one in the country to review implementation of Biden's executive order. Two key parts of Biden's order that Demos had uh, advocated were turning federal agencies into voter registration operations and working with private organizations to increase voter turnout, which, look, um, they're not going to be working with private agencies that are conservative. There's no, the, there's no way the Biden administration is going to work to make um, Kansas or any other state or any government operation anything the federal government is involved in, they're going to be working to boost progressive turnout and to get more progressive votes, more votes for Biden in swing states. That's the purpose of this executive order. Regardless of what the administration says, if you look at the outcome, Kansas is a model of how this, uh, how this is going to work. It's, it's a model of how the Biden administration is essentially preparing to make sure that more Democrats are registered to vote in these states than Republicans. So we're going to continue to follow that story. I'm sure this is just the beginning with Kansas sort of taking the lead on this. Um, All right, I wanted to talk about the economy for a minute. And there's a story out in Forbes today that kind of points to the strengths and the weaknesses of the U.S. economy and what we may be looking for going forward. The flurry of headlines related to the economy can be difficult to make sense of. Are we in a recession? Will prices continue to rise? Where should I invest my money? I think those are questions that I know I'm asking. I think a lot of Americans are asking about that. And and so what we've seen is that we had a lot more jobs added to the economy, 377,000 than was expected in this last reporting session. 
Um, the, the expectation was there would be uh, over 250,000 jobs added. There were 377,000, and the jobs totals for previous months were updated, and they were all adjusted up. Now, the problem, that, is this a good thing? Of course. I mean, having a lot of people employed, the problem is the pressure that interest rates is putting on the debt and the pressure that, that inflation is putting on average Americans. So as the debt becomes more expensive to maintain and as inflation continues to affect what Americans are paying, you know, everybody's talking about increased spending, that Americans are spending more money. Well, yeah, we're spending more money because things cost more. I mean, we're spending more every time we go to the grocery store. We're spending more when we go to the pump. We're spending more on any goods and services because inflation, while it may be, and it's advancing again, by the way. I mean, there was a time when it was cooling off a little bit. It's rising again, but we're stuck at higher prices that's forcing additional spending. The average 30-year fixed mortgage rate surpassed 7% in August. That's the highest level in 21 years. That's going to eventually stall the, the housing market. Uh, home sales are already beginning to cool off, but you get up to 7% plus for a mortgage, and people are going to think twice before they put their house on the market and try to find a new house paying over 7% mortgage, particularly if their mortgage rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 3%. I mean, they're just, they're just not going to, they're not going to want to make the change. A rule of thumb definition, this is coming from Forbes, uh, for a recession is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP, which did occur last year. Another key indicator is an inverted yield curve. When short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, which has been the case since 2022, yet the economy remained more resilient than expected. Gross domestic product, GDP, grew faster than anticipated in the second quarter at 2.1%, the fourth consecutive quarter of growth. Third quarter GDP data won't be out until later this month, but forecasters surveyed by the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia predict higher out output in the next three quarters than they did previously. Looking at the labor market, the unemployment rate is historically low at 3.8%, while hiring seemed to be decelerating in August. Friday's report showed 336 jobs in September, far more than the 170,000 economists expected. And then we had, um, and so again, this looks good for the labor market. Um, the S&P 500 is up 11% in 2023. As of the end of the day Thursday, the Dow is down a slight 0.5%, and the AI boom has fueled NASDAQ's 27% gains this year, not included reinvested dividends. Inflation remains stubbornly above the Fed's target of 2%, and consumer prices rose 3.7% in the 12-month period ending in August. It was the largest monthly increase since January, driven by surging gas prices, though far below the 8.3% mark seen a year ago. Core inflation, which includes more food and energy indexes, was 4.3% in August. So again, um, what's going to determine the strength and the health of the U.S. economy going forward? We've got a $33 trillion debt. We're now paying 
higher interest on this debt. There was a story this morning in the Wall Street Journal that Wall Street is beginning is getting nervous about taking on more government bonds related to debt because of the interest rates. You know, we've that they've always kind of the the idea that the debt really doesn't matter because the United States economy is strong enough to absorb all this. But once these interest rates begin to kick in on the debt and the amount that we have to pay in interest just on the debt is equal to the defense budget of between seven and eight hundred billion dollars just in interest payments, that's when there's a there's a threat to the economy. Uh, that's when there's a threat to banks. Banks are worried about the bond market. Um, and th this could lead to the collapse of more banks. Um, and we haven't seen a wave of that yet, at least not prior, like previous times when we've had economic challenges, but the possibility of that is still on the table. So we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know what this attack in Israel is going to do yet to oil prices. Already, uh, they're, they're rising because the concern is that the attacks won't remain isolated between in Israel between Israel Israeli territory and Gaza that that's going to that that's actually going to expand in the Middle East and if there's any hint of a disruption in the oil supply then that's going to force prices historically high um, so we're waiting to see what kind of effect all that's going to have all right, that's all the time we've got for today's program. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope that you'll join me again tomorrow at 735. It's going to be a special day. I'll be interviewing Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett from right here in South Carolina. And later on this week, we'll be talking about what Andy Stanley had to say in his sermon last Sunday, trying to defend the fact that he had the unconditional conference, which seems to promote same se the same-sex agenda. We'll do that after I have a chance to listen to Andy, because I think that's only fair. God bless you. Have a great day. I'll see you in the morning at 730.